0: Listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome back, listeners. This is Daria Brown, AffectAutism.com, and I have a returning guest, one of my most frequent and favorite guests, occupational therapist Maude Larue. She has run her practice in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, A Total Approach, for over 20 years, and. I've brought my son there many times, he misses it. He still asks, when am I going to school camp? Because we haven't been since 2019 before the pandemic. Uh, It's just outside Philadelphia. She has operated her own online academy for three years now, Maud LaRue Academy, and I will put links to these in the blog post at affectautism.com. Today, we are going to discuss a topic that uh, Maud knows a lot about, the impact of vestibular processing on the functional, emotional, developmental capacities, the FEDCs, or that developmental ladder that we talk about in the developmental individual differences relationship model, DIR floor time. Welcome
1: back, Mod. It's so good to be back, Daria. I think this is a very timely topic. There's so much happening in this arena, and there's so many people looking at the different sensory systems now with and without looking in the OT realm of things. Um, I think that it's a good topic for us to sort of extrapolate a bit more on in thinking of the FEDCs.
0: Perfect. Well, I am going to probably pause and translate for some of your terms throughout the podcast for new listeners or people that are just stumbling upon the pro- on the podcast and maybe they don't know what FEDCs are, I said it at the beginning, but I'll say it a couple more times, functional, emotional, developmental capacities. We focus on those first six early developmental capacities, that foundation that we want to build on uh, before our kids get into academics and that we really focus on in DIR floor time and vestibular processing. What is that, Mod?
1: The way our body moves. That's the simple part of it. So when we are born, um, the the baby is sort of... know lying down until mommy picks him up and puts him down very cute little phase of life but the the essence is is that when the baby starts to lift their head they're starting to lift their body against gravity is what we're talking about so it's basically the position of my head against gravity the receptors for my movement system is in my inner ear so they are like three semicircular canals and then two little other pieces. there called the utricle and the saccule. Very small, small system, but fully mature by the time we're born. And it's the same size, still where you are now, whatever your age is. So it's fully there. And so this system is integral in helping and to mobilize me into wanting to move, wanting to be a part of what life gives us. So it is crucial. So when we in OT lingo, we always say, can they move against gravity? How much pull do they have against gravity? How much can they sustain a position against gravity? Practically speaking, if your child's in school, and he's sitting at a desk, and he's paying attention to the teacher, after a while, you start seeing them shift, you start seeing them fidget, and you start seeing them sort of do this kind of thing. The teacher says, "Mm, can you please sit still? And you're like, okay, okay. And the very next minute, we start fidgeting again. That need to move is our anti-gravity response, is our vestibular system. That's where that goes.
0: And um, many of our kids, including mine, Maude knows my son very well, always has needed to move from the second he came out of the womb, I had to bounce him around. He loved it when I went like this, when he was a baby. He loved when I tipped him over. He loved when dad threw him up in the air and caught him. He just, that sense of movement really fulfilled him. And I would I would think that um, on his eye or the eye in the DIR model, the individual differences, his sensory processing profile is very under stimulated in that vestibular sense. He just needs to move to stay regulated.
1: Absolutely. The vestibular system is a, a very cool system. It is like the, the, it's like the pivotal point where all the systems sort of evolve around. It's actually the, own syst- the only sensory system that feeds back into itself. All the other sensory systems are hooking up to other pieces. But this one, this one is, is like it's like the grounding agent of the of sensory integration. And so this is why it's so important to kind of look at all these manifestations like your child who wants to move around all the time. So the vestibular system can have an impact on both your autonomic nervous system, which is more part of your peripheral nervous system. And I'm not going to get too technical, I promise. But and the other part is your central nervous system. So when we think about the vestibular system in a high active, almost like sensory seeking kid, you're looking more at the autonomic nervous system, which is driven by my arousal level. So sometimes if I feel like I need more availability to my environment, I need to get more information from my environment to stay alert, I will move all the time. And some kids can be like ping pong balls. They can be everywhere. Um, It's just like, how do we keep up with them, right? And I know the poor parents are oftentimes very fatigued by the activity level of their child, but as long as we understand that that high movement level is not necessarily something that is maladaptive, and this is one piece that I really want to bring home today. A child's behavioral response has in the past been seen as a maladaptive piece, like This is not functional. This is not appropriate. This is not how other kids go through life. Some kids actually do have the ability to sit still, right? This child doesn't. I want us to change those terms and change it to adaptive behavior. Because a lot of the times, if we look at it as maladaptive behavior, we think we should change it for the sake of changing it. If we think about it as adaptive behavior, then we should say, okay, why is my child like a ping pong today? Why, what's happening? Why does he need to adapt to the environment today in such a high movement way? What's making that happen? Because our response is usually based on the fact that we have an inner peace that is not in sync with something. It's coming from somewhere. It's not random and it's not willful. It's coming from a place of adaptation, um, and that's, I think, a very important piece. So, for instance, eye mover, maybe the, the situation is that I don't really always understand where my body is in space. And so if we look at FEDC1 and FEDC2 in particular, body awareness is a big, big key piece of vestibular processing in combination with other systems, but today we'll only focus on vestibular. And so if I don't know where I am, if I close my eyes and I can't figure out where my body is situated and I don't have vision to help me with that information, it makes me feel so insecure. And that insecurity drives me to seek movement so that I can feel more secure. It's not so efficient though. And that's why sometimes you can Give a child a swing and he'll swing for 24 hours. He'll just keep swinging and it won't really get to that place because you do need the connection to um, to get that just right balance in your in your autonomic nervous system. So So,
0: let's unpack the bundle of stuff you just said. (laughs) So it affects FEDC one and two. So the first functional emotional developmental capacity Ability to stay regulated and have attention. That's right. So um, if you're not feeling safe, if I close my eyes and I lose my balance and I'm I'm falling over, I don't feel safe. I'm not regulated. I can't pay attention and have attention and share attention with others. That's right. To the second functional emotional developmental capacity, which is engaging and relating with somebody. So that, like, ooh, what are they looking at? Like that interest and that that um being able to engage with gestures, eye contact, uh, whatever it is that the child, however, the child engages being that falling in love stage where there's interest in a shared um, thing, whatever,
1: <laughs> right? No, no, it's very true. And, and I think you, you put it in such a nice way, you are summarizing in such a good way, um, Daria, but it's it's so important that we realize that the the sy- vestibular system doesn't even have to have a problem to become a sensory seeker. Oh, okay. That it's not always the vestibular system that's at fault. It's because the other systems aren't coming into place and the vestibular system is trying to get them to act up. So okay. it's, 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 it's like a two-way sword here. Everybody looks at the high sensory seeker mover and say, well, we got to give him vestibular input. It's true, but not for the reason of vestibular, for the reason of activating the connection to the other systems. Because I need need information from my eyes. I need information from my auditory system. I need information from everywhere. And the vestibular system is often the catalyst to, to access visual, to access auditory, to access proprioceptive comes through the vestibular. So it's not always a cool idea just to give more vestibular movement.
0: And this is where I'm going to refer people back in the podcast, in the blog post as well to the podcast I did with Keith Landair because it was called um, sensory integration co-regulation is the driver for sensory integration I think that was what it was called yeah. and it was back to that point that Greenspan made and that you know that you guys talk about if you're just swinging by yourself that's not doing anything when you're swinging and engaging with somebody and like okay here's a target I wonder if you can kick it and then you swing and kick it whoa when you have that reaction and that mm-hmm. affect, and you're getting that connection and making it fun. Yeah. So, what you're adding to that podcast, which I think is a really cool piece for helping parents understand that, is oh, that pulled in. I mean, this might be obvious, but for me, this is what I'm, I'm pulling. Oh, spelling it out for me. Now I'm using my vision too to watch where the target is. I'm using my auditory to hear you say, oh, and I'm using my, um, my eyes or whatever, to see your affect going, whoa, you know, and the movement and everything being all pulled in together is what's helping as opposed to just swinging back and forth.
1: That's right. That's right. And that's where DR is so beautiful. It is so pristinely beautiful. I've been an SI therapist for many years. And of course, I've been- SI a- sensory integration. Sensory integration, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, you helped me. Help me a little bit there, Daria. But the um, these teams are, are terms I use so every day, right? But the, um, and I've been a DR therapist for so many years, but for many years, I separated out those therapies, right? To some degree until I realized, how silly is that? I enjoy DIR, by the way, more actually, so I want to do what I enjoy doing. And once I started just switching over almost completely in my SI sessions, sensory integration to DIR sessions, I got the sensory anyway. It is the most beautiful thing because natural play enhances the natural way of integration. That is just the bottom line of it. But coming back to that whole piece. The, um, the same, that, that, that vestibular integration piece, in this inner ear mechanism where you get the semicircular canals that sloshes liquids depending on where you're holding your head um, and the utricle and saccule with up and down moving and side to side movement, they're a little bit different. You also get a pristine connection to the auditory system, which is also highly impactful for FEDC1 and 2 regulation and engagement because the auditory system and the vestibular system together is about 80% of the brain's energy. Wow. So it's one cranial nerve, cranial nerve eight, and it's a very big piece to use if you want to really impact on the sensory development of a child. So what does this mean practically? It means that if I can't always hear what the teacher or the speaker is saying, I can always start moving and I'll hear them better. Because neuroanatomically, you can't separate the vestibular from the auditory system and it shares the same cranial nerve to the prefrontal cortex to analyze the information. So if I have a bit of an auditory piece and what they found with research in ASD here in Philadelphia is that over a large spectrum of ASD profiles, They're only listening to every third or fourth syllable of what we're speaking. So if you think about that large component of auditory issues and you think about the vestibular piece and you think about if I'm not able to hear you clearly, if I start moving, I can start to hear you better. That is a very important component if you ever want seated attention, if you ever want somebody to have a place of quietness to pay attention to somebody talking to them and even thinking about kids who are maybe not so verbal who are struggling with verbal communication what are they hearing what are they listening how are they processing that information how much do they need to move in order to activate the auditory system to come alive
0: it's so interesting um you know i i think of a zillion things when you say that well no specifically three things. (laughs) But um, the first thing that popped into my mind is this is why you use Tomatis sound listening therapy. And that's the first thing you did with our son to work on regulation was the way that he spoke gave you clues, you told me into what he's hearing, because Mm -hmm. the way he spoke was very unclear, so that he's reproducing what he's hearing. Um, And you know, we did numerous rounds of tomato Sound Listening Therapy and his speech is so much clearer now. He's also 13 now. But we started I, I forget how old he was when we first went to you. Um, was,
1: wasn't he in preschool or he must have been? I, I think I, he was he, about
0: six. He might have been about five, five early, five, early school. But yeah. it, it was uh, he was young. He was a lot smaller. That's for sure. He, he's almost as tall as me now. You wouldn't believe it. Um, and some of his classmates are like a head taller than me, so his growth spurt will come soon, and I'll be like, "Ah,
1: oh, my little baby's bigger um, I than me." I can... It's a. I still remember that very first video we took, where he where he was kind of lying on the ground, you know. And you were like, "What's up with that, Maude? Why does he keep lying on the?" <laughs> right. And I had to explain that to you, but yeah, I I it brings back a lot of which mind. we
0: describe in season two of We Chose Play. I've been a bit delayed on getting episode two out, but episode one is out. It's all about our intervention, if you will, at a total approach, mods um, feedback about my son and all of this information. So those that are interested, you can check out We Chose Play at um, ICDL at, um, you can look at affectautism.com. I have uh, a link to We Chose Play. It's also um, wechoseplay.com, autism.com slash play, all of those uh, places. It's also at the floortime.org uh, site through International Council on Development and Learning. But um, so that being said, the Tomatis piece, the other thing I thought about, now let's see if I'm um, remembering everything you said now. So yeah, giving children accommodations. We did a podcast called accommodation versus remediation or remediation versus accommodation or whatever, where kids in classrooms who need to move might sit on a bouncy ball Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, they can pay attention more because they're bouncing and like oh this makes sense um people that bounce well you can't see my knee but my knee is bouncing up and down like you know you people that rock their legs while they're sitting um when i was in university uh the kids would twirl their pens around i can still sort of do it you know this was the thing that people did non-stop twirling their pens non-stop everybody you know girls twirling their hair like people are doing different kinds of movements that help you pay Mm -hmm. attention. Um, And, and the other thing I thought about, and I'm not sure if there was something else or if this was something I thought about earlier, but this is probably a separate topic altogether, but people that are listening might recognize us talking about vestibular system, the inner ear, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had a bout of vertigo twice in my life and my mother had vertigo quite severely a few years back where Mm -hmm. you just all of a sudden the room is spinning and you throw up and you feel like awful and it's sort of this inner ear thing. And then they work with you to sort of figure out your balance and get the little crystals and particles in your ear back or whatever. Um, So this is all the same system that Maude is talking about. We're just talking we're talking about it, not in the sense of someone catching vertigo or or having vertigo problems, but um, we're talking about it in terms of development. And I mean, I don't know anything more about it. You may may not specialize in that either. But I just wanted to alert people to, you know, that's the same system that we're talking about.
1: Absolutely. And we actually do do quite a number of concussion clients. Oh. and also brain injury but especially concussion as a huge component of vertigo and a huge component of that whole piece that when i bend over i just feel dizzy coming up that's all part of that same vestibular system
0: my mother still has that yeah she finds and it very hard to bend over without like yeah. totally losing maybe, her balance
1: maybe we should talk about it and, and see if we could help her okay but, the, um, but yeah we work with um, some concussion doctors that they usually send us cases where they feel like their rehab has not made the inroads that they thought, especially multiple concussions. But anyway, that is another topic for another day. But the the important, I think what's so necessary from what we're saying here is that the connectivity of the vestibular system to the other systems is so high. If we just go um, almost from FEDC three into the developmental of FEDC two to three, that area is usually also when our ocular motor control comes much more handy. Of course, we use our vision from birth, but that's when the ocular motor control is building on top of the postural control. And so, using my vision at the same time as my vestibular system is so important. Think about driving your car. If you are looking ahead in the road, um, you're using central vision. You're focusing with both eyes on the same point. Your peripheral vision keeps catching up what you're passing in the car because you don't do this while you drive in the car. And that's, of course, is visual spatial skill. But if my ocular motor system is not operating well with my vestibular system, I can't get there. We can actually talk about the visual system in a lot more detail in a different podcast. But I just want to point out the relationship between that and the vestibular system is what can cause dizziness in kids, but they don't know to tell you because they don't know what it feels like without it. Let alone not having the words. They think everybody experiences life the same way. They don't have another body to compare it with. So what we then see is that kids also need to move a lot because their vision has to catch up somewhere because they don't have this central peripheral piece it's coming from what we call the vestibular ocular reflex. That is a very important piece. So it's not just looking at vision as a visual piece, it's looking at there's a relationship between those two that the vestibular system needs to help them with the adaptation.
0: So you talked about moving from functional emotional developmental capacity two to three. I just wanted mm. to spell that out from engaging and relating yeah. to the point where you're having back and forth circles of communication. Like in neurotypical children, these are all before okay. speech starts. That's so, right. you know, looking at mama, ah, passing the toy, taking the toy, like this back and forth, okay. um, two way, purposeful, emotional communication. Absolutely. And so you're saying that, that the vision coming online helps with that. And it makes me think about, you know, just development in general, how, you know, little kids aren't coordinated enough to ride a bicycle without training wheels yet. And I remember you told me that when you saw a video of my son riding a bike with training wheels, um, you pointed out, I love how he's not looking down. Mm He doesn't need to look down to see where he's going. He feels confident enough to ride the bike. And that was important for you because of what you just described.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you need integration to use separateness in the individual systems. You know, it's only when the foundation is integrated that I can fluidly use my visual system freely, fluidly use my auditory system freely. And I think sometimes people get that confused. You know, they confuse one for the other. It's first making sure that each system is carrying information in an appropriate way to the brain to be analyzed. Then they have to time them together. And then you have the freedom of that exploration. But this all happens fluidly throughout the first four years into the first five, seven years of life. I wanna go, um, go back to just FEDC2. When we think about joint attention and we think about engaging the child with us in an activity, So one of the things that um, of course people always worry about as we talked about is sitting still, right? And and being able to be still enough so we can have a joint attentive moment together and not have to play chase games to have joint attention, right? Um, One of those big components where the vestibular system is very, very important is with postural control. And in postural control, we are thinking about the tummy muscles as our flexor muscles and our back muscles as our extensor muscles. Now that extensor system is entirely fed by the vestibular system. So when your therapist puts your child in a prone extension Superman pose, that's what we're testing. We're testing how they can hold that extended position from the upper arms to the lower legs against gravity and sustain that position. Because that sustaining power is what's gonna help you with staying sedentary. So many kids who have a difficulty in either the flexor system or the extensor system um, don't have the balance between those systems. And the one system has to make up for the weaker system, which causes them to fatigue much earlier. And now you see them W sitting, if they're younger, or you see them slumping against things, or you see them always needing something to touch when they are needing to sit down in a circle time for teacher, or you see them walking the hallways, touching the walls. Um, those kind of experiences are all part of I need that, that pieces for myself to come together for my posture to help me to understand my core. And once I can get more groundedness in my core, I can feel more safe and secure about how I'm moving in the environment. So yes, these can also look like kids who can't sit still in a desk. But it's also your high movers again, because your high movers may be for that different reason we already mentioned. But it could also be because they need momentum to maintain their play. Kids who don't have partial control adapts their places of play with momentum, which is not sustaining myself against gravity. It's trying to move over gravity.
0: So every single symptom you just described is my son to a T. So, you know, need to touch everything when he was walking around, um, always slumping, um w sitting to this day he'll be in the bathtub w sitting which is uh sitting on your knees with your legs out so it looks like a w instead of sitting on your bum and being able to hold yourself up um for years people say need to work on core strength need to work on core strength need to work on core strength we brought him to this program in toronto called um movement and she would hold his feet and he would you know walk with his hands and and do these different things and she'd say He has such a strong core. I don't know what they're talking about, but she's not an occupational therapist. And I think that is the difference here, which again is a takeaway for me today, the difference between core strength and this understanding of whatever you, however, my understanding was something about postural control and understanding the core because it's different. He is very, very strong, but he doesn't have that postural control. Still to this day, he struggles with that.
1: Yeah. And it's it's the balance again, you know, I, I often wonder about when we as adults, we talk about being in balance. And, you know, and balance, of course, is a feature in itself for the vestibular system, because the way I stand on my one foot and I hold my leg up in the air is maintaining my balance, right? But we use it in yoga, we use it in so many different places. But being but just, in so, balance, just
0: so you know, there was a news story last week that said if you can't balance on one foot or sorry, people who can balance adults standing on one foot um, predicts how long you'll live or something like that.
1: Oh, I, I, I better start practicing again.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I forget. I'll have to look it up and see where that was and try and put a link to it. But yeah, if you can't stand on one foot and balance, like apparently it's not good. Um, but
1: anyway, that aside. <laughs> no, it's that's very interesting. I think I need to go look at that article. But the um, uh, but it's so important, you know, that these that your flexure extensor system has to be in balance. Your vestibular has to be in balance with your vision. Your vestibular has to be in balance with your auditory. And we haven't even touched the, tomat- the somatosensory, the touch proprioceptive system yet. But I just want to make sure I conclude on that visual piece because if you see your child play and you see them um, wanting to um, to play with things only that they see in their environment right and they're more directed towards out there visually right know that that is a compensation but they're trying to get ideas it's a good place to be they're trying to get some visual idea from somewhere but the um, the connection is not completely full yet to make that visual system come alive in imagination and visualization, which we need for FEDC four and up. Right. So these connections there again, I think we should do a separate podcast just on on all the complications of vision, because um, I think there's some misunderstanding sometimes with how people are viewing what that practicality and functionality is, you know, um, if we, if we then sort of go to FEDC, so go ahead, yes, please. If
0: I wanna talk more about that before you move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, so in terms of vision, that's another thing I wanted to say. So my son's had vision tests and they say his his vision is fine, his vision is great, but it's the, um, what do you call it? The perception of, or sorry, How do you word it? The way your brain processes the vision.
1: Receives that, yeah.
0: Yeah, is the, and he did when he had brain inflammation at age two, there was lots of brain damage in the visual cortex or whatever, which processes vision. So even though he had perfect vision, his um, physical structures were working fine. It's the processing of it. And that's the case in a lot of people, which is why they send you to a developmental optometrist as opposed to regular vision check, vision check is the first thing. And then Mm -hmm. developmental optometrist checks. Do they have, are they seeing, are they um, centralizing their vision, as they said, or are they focused on their peripheral all the time? If they can't filter out their peripheral vision, they have a hard time focusing. Um, Do they have depth perception or do they see everything flat and they're tripping all the time? That could be that. Do they? um, There's a number of things that they check for. And so they found out that my son has astigmatism in one eye. And so they, he has glasses that, you know, he only wears a little bit each day, but because of, oh, his issue was he was um, suppressing the sight in one eye and only using the stronger eye. And so with wearing his glasses, the last two times we went, he was using both eyes. So she was very Mm -hmm. happy, but they do vision exercises. So I've given it to the school and they do these vision exercises every day. So he might have to lay with his head and look around with his eyes. But of course he goes like this, but they have to say, no, keep your head still. Then they have to use very motivating things like Mario Kart or whatever it was at the time, Paw Patrol, use a flashlight, get him to look around, get him to do different things. And that helps build that. So I do wanna get into before the podcast is over um, later, what we do to integrate all these things. So I just gave one example, the vision exercises from the developmental optometrist, but I do wanna go back before you go on to one thing you said, which was so important, is that you need to integrate before you separate. Mm -hmm. And this is what um, unrelated to what we're talking about today is what Dr. Gordon Neufeld talks about all the time. He's a developmental clinical, former clinical psychologist uh, out of Canada, and he does a lot of stuff around attachment And he talks about how if you don't have that um, attachment with your primary caregiver, where you feel so safe and secure and get that constant attention that you need. He talks about it as a hunger. You wouldn't starve your child. You wouldn't deprive your child of sleep. Why would you deprive them of the attention and attachment that they need? Because once they are so attached, then they can individuate and go off on their own and that's way oversimplifying what he says but it's the same processes that you're talking about here and he talks about it also in terms of emotions you have to feel one emotion at a time when you're little you can only feel one thing at a time and then once your prefrontal cortex comes on they start to mix and you can feel Well, on the one hand i'm scared but on the other hand i really want to go on that roller coaster and so he talks about this integration separation in a lot of his theory. And it's Absolutely. it's really interesting to hear you talk about it in terms of this uh, processing as well.
1: And, and you know, what's what's really made this topic um, become so important for me to talk about um, when you ask for a topic. Let's talk about this because I follow a lot of attachment and trauma research. Um, I do a lot of work in attachment and trauma, adoptive situations and those pieces and I'm seeing how many of those research pieces are coming back to these pieces, these sensory integration pieces that, that helps you to make sense of your world. Um, and it, it it makes, it's like, okay, Maude, really, we see, we understand, we hear, we understand. Of course, everybody knows that, but we don't know. The, the depth of what that possibility is and so and how much this upsets the entire emotional system number one if there is an area in your brain sorry i stopped myself mid-sentence there but there's an area in the brain stem that the fancy word is called the periaqueductal gray so that's a new word that not new but trauma people are talking about that more and more and that area is where the external information coming from the environment, has to meet the internal information. And so if that's in sync with each other, we can get that beautiful balance we talked about again earlier, that in-syncness that has to come with integration. So if if your child is not feeling that in-syncness with their own systems, it creates a sensory physical insecurity. That physical insecurity then drives the emotional insecurity. So many children who have sensory integration developmental delay struggle to increase their emotional capacities because the sensory systems are driving an experience that feels uncomfortable. So our brain stores our experiences all the time, even from utero. So all of your experiences are currently in your brain, everything. From implicit days in utero, even what we cannot recall. And the way it's stored is by an emotional association. Think about that. So it's why did...
0: I still feel so guilty and terrible for sleeping through the first night of my son's birth because they said, come down at 3 a.m. or whatever it was to feed him. And I was so exhausted from the birth because I stayed up all night and he was born at 5 a.m. And, and the labor was very quick, but, you know, I, I was up all night and nobody came to wake me up. And when i woke up i was like (gasps) and i went down because he was in intensive care in like a little incubator just to watch him because he was born three weeks early he was full term but three weeks early and still had a bit of fluid in his lungs because the birth was so fast and they luckily i had pumped some milk so they fed him breast milk which i was relieved about um because that was important to me at the time and uh but he wasn't there to get that cuddling with me for a full however many hours and to this day i'm like that must have been so traumatizing for him because this little guy that was in my tummy all cozy and then he's stuck in this like plastic incubator with random nurses coming and poking him and then you know but i know i can't we can't blame ourselves for everything like that but still like even little things like that the brain stores and it's like this like what's happening where am i right and imagine people that have gone through abuse and other horrible situations and that makes so much sense that you said, uh, it affects their emotion because then as we know, you mentioned going into FEDC4, which is um, complex communication, uh, social problem solving. And it, it's the beginning of imaginary play and that emotional interactions with people. And if, you, if your emotional system is struggling because your sensory system is struggling, it's gonna be hard for you to get into that, that uh, capacity.
1: That's so right. And and what I'm seeing over and over in our SI literature and our work with Gene Sensory
0: integration literature.
1: And when we're looking at the work that Dr. Jean Ayers gave us in sensory integration, she talks about this adaptive response, right, that we have to form. So you always hear OTs talk about the adaptive response. And we have focused on it as a sensory adaptive response. This is the way that my body is operating, because it's adapting to the sensory information that's coming in. Well, what I come to see in my work is that there's more than one adaptive response. There's the sensory adaptive response, but then there's also the emotional adaptive response, because even though sometimes I've done pre and post testing, and we've tested the sensory systems pre and post, and they've done beautifully well. The parent can still tell me, Maud, I love the results, but we have the same behaviors at home still. And when I started getting that feedback, I'm like, how's that possible? How's it possible? I mean, I can see in my clinic. I don't even have to do a test to see that the child has changed the nervous system. They're applying themselves better to movement. They're doing what they need to do. What is up with this? And then I started looking at the brain research and at the the pieces that comes together. And I realized that, yes, the integration was integral to make sure that the body can feel that sense of comfort and safety. But it takes a little while longer sometimes for the child to trust the new body emotionally in order to not reinvent those ugly experiences from before. So I do want to write a white paper on these on these differences because i think it's going to be so important and so informative because sometimes when you have that feedback you feel like you've just been useless i mean what does it help if the test looks okay but the behavior still hasn't changed and believe me it doesn't happen in all the cases but in those ones that it did happen it was puzzling and then i started to realize that no the work is done the, the work is done the adaptive response is there we didn't ask the child to do something different. We tested exactly the things that he did poorly in before and he is much, much better. So there's another reason. And so when we got to working on emotional processing, using floor time much earlier in our program now and doing the the approach, doing floor time and doing SI coincidingly and also sometimes speech depending on the client, we had a much faster adaptive response. Much faster did the adaptive behavior change at home than, um, than we saw before. So that's what I do now. I work them both together at the same time from the beginning because I want to get the punch that we need to help this little body to get to the best place that it could be.
0: Yeah, and that was, you know, Greenspan's big um revelation or whatever, you know, based on all the research he was looking at, that was what he brought forward when he said, you know, people had ABA applied behavior analysis, but now we know all of these other things. And he said emotion was the key. And now we're seeing the neuroscience supporting that theory that he had back in the seventies and eighties. So right. floor time really does focus on emotional, um, experiences of the child. And, and that's like so important.
1: Absolutely. And so I use it with all my kids. It doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. We we use that emotional approach all the time. And it's so crucial. And it it speaks to also the vestibular system. And by the way, there is research out there, the cerebellum, which is like the key piece in the brain for vestibular. They are, there's oodles of research now connecting the cerebellum to the emotional experience, vestibular emotional. So it's a it's a big piece. So though that kid again, that's that sensory seeker, or that low arousal child, you will find that the corresponding emotional responses to the hyper or hypo activity goes hand in hand with that profile. Change a vestibular, you change the emotional response.
0: So I remember asking you before about cerebellum exercises, because I hear, you know, different people saying, oh, for autistic kids that struggle, blah, 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 do cerebellum exercises. And again, you're saying like combining it with the floor time really is what's necessary because floor time brings in that reading affect and getting those back and forth circles of communication. And we're social beings and and getting that going helps so much more. Uh, so that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's just so many things going through my mind right now. And uh, I, I do want to be mindful of the time. But the, the power that parents have in this piece is so great, Daria. You know that. <laughs> that's where you come from, right? It's so powerful because in your hands lies some of the biggest tools that we as therapists can never, ever have.
0: The emotional so, piece, yeah. Right.
1: The connectivity is there just because it's there. I have to attune to your child. You naturally already have that peace. But then you have to listen to what the world says. And this one says, do this. And that one says, do this. And this one says, do this. And then you start thinking, now, who do I believe when? Do I leave my child alone when he's sleeping and he's crying in his sleep for me to come? Or do I go to him? Do I comfort him? Or do I teach him he needs to sleep alone at night? You know, all these different methods out there is so confusing for a parent. I want to give you a little nugget, right? Daria is saying, let's get some exercises, let's give, so how do we work on all these pieces, right? If you find yourself doing an activity where you have to forfeit the relationship, do not do it.
0: And let me define what that is forcing your child to cry to learn how to fall asleep I feel very strongly about this I think that's so cruel and I know many parents have done it with success and I don't ever want to like condemn parents but you know that child loses some trust in you like they don't care that I'm crying they don't see that I'm in need Um, now that's I before I get a million emails saying you don't know this condition, blah, blah, blah. My child cries, regardless, it might not be because of that. And I'm not a mean parent. I'm just using that as a blanket over example. Of course, context is everything, which was the highlight of my podcast, latest podcast with Karen Rose. For those of you that listened to the last podcast, context is everything. So don't just take my words as black and white. Of course, there are individual situations. But if you are forcing your child to um, do an activity, and they are screaming and uncomfortable and you're not having that good relationship with them is what Maude is saying. We always want that relationship to be the primary source, the safety net within which you're doing therapy or play or other types of things. That's right. I'm sure I didn't word that as eloquently as I could have, but hopefully the point is there.
1: I think it is what it is. Food for thought. That's what you provide on this podcast. So Sometimes we say things that may not be so popular. Other times we say things that may be hugely popular. And we just ask for forgiveness if we are treading on any toes. um, And just, um, you know, help us to help whatever, whoever we can. Right. So I want to kind of stand with that little statement there. Because if you can do activities on FEDC one uh, and two for, for those pieces, heavy wrestling play tug of war, um, pillow fights, you know, I don't care how old the child is, if you're on that level, those things are hugely impactful on the body, gives you movement, but it also gives you the system that we haven't touched on because we're out of time, is the proprioceptive system that connects to that. The proprioceptive system is little receptors that's in each of your joints, and it tells your body how it's moving through space. So yes, we need another podcast to talk about more. We need one on the
0: vision. We need one on the proprioception. And you also mentioned low arousal kid, hypo, hype, whatever, the sensory seekers. But we didn't even talk about the kids who are just sort of slumping and they need arousal um, to, you know, like there's the kids that move Mm -hmm. all the time, but then there's the kids that never move.
1: (laughs) And so this is where, and FTC 1 and 2, these rough and tumble plays, Think about a typical child developing. Is there any typical child developing that doesn't go through a phase like that? That's when they're working on it, by the way. But we're not watching it the same way that we're watching a developmentally delayed child, right? So that those pieces are crucial. I don't care how old the child is. You can have fun. Family nights. I have one family, uh, or I had one. Not, they're not with me anymore. The child moved on. But they had Friday night family fun night, where the only thing they did was like, Thinking up games that can go with with tackling each other and doing some beautiful games. There's a lovely game that Sheila Frick taught me one year um, when she said, um, you know, just lie on the floor. Nobody's allowed to get up, but everybody has a pair of socks on. And so everybody has to wrestle to see who can get whose socks all first, right? (laughs) Just the fun games. If something is task, the child doesn't understand you as a parent. The child doesn't understand that some days you here, and then then you'd ask this and then you ask this but what they do want from you is the emotional security that only mothers and fathers can give and yes make fathers, it
0: fun make it fun right.
1: right and then on on three and four quickly you can do all kinds of activities that has got like hopping and skipping and jumping um, those kind of activities are very important playing on a playground hanging from uh, from the the beams, those kind of things are very important to harness on three and four. And on five and six, where vestibular comes together very closely with the emotional experience, those ones, you know, good old floor time play, doing role plays, understanding people's, different people's emotions, um, enacting perspective and view is really the best way to integrate the full package. And yes, we only focus on vestibular today. All the sensory systems are important, But I just wanted to make sure that this very crucial piece is a piece that we all understand in a little bit of a different way and if there are any questions Daria just feel them my way I will gladly answer them
0: great and uh, she talked about four five six I'll put links to all those functional emotional developmental capacities what they involve in the blog post at affectautism.com I will quickly leave you with a couple of examples of things that my son and I do every night when I say put your clothes in the hamper he pulls his socks off inside out, and I go, mm, no, don't put them inside out. And then he laughs and giggles, and I'll say, kick back, and he'll kick his foot up, and I'll pull the sock off the right way, but then he's being sneaky, and he tries to put them inside out, and then he laughs his head off, and we have this beautiful, fun, giggly back and forth, where he's trying to take the sock off before I get him to say, kick back. Um, It's just really fun. And the second thing we do when we lay down to sleep is he loves Mario Kart. He loves the stampede where all the Yoshis run down the hill and and stampede the character, (laughs) it's terrible. But anyway, it's funny. And so he says, stampede me, mama. So lights are off and I come and I pretend that I trip over the bed and fall onto him. And so he's crushed and then he laughs his head off and he wants to give me a Zurbert. So he goes on my face and goes (laughs) on my cheek and I go, and then i rub my cheek on his chest and tickle him and he laughs his head off and laughs his head off and then he wants to do it all night long but then i'll be like okay one more that's enough and then we sort of calm it down but just that rough and tumble kind of play being silly moving doing that i think is the kind of things you're talking about as opposed to teaching him take your socks off put it in the hamper, like all these instructions, we're making it more fun. Like, kick back, I'm gonna get your song, don't put it inside out, oh, no, oh no, you did it. And he laughs his head off and you know, it's just more fun. Play, floor time is fun, play is fun. We chose play. Next time, um, <laughs> Maud, we will get into the other things. Thank you so much, okay. never enough time with you.
1: I know. I know, same here. Everybody just have fun. And um, thank you for having me, Daria.
0: Talk Take to you it. soon, Maud.
1: Until next
0: time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections. What I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day.